Now, we are here in 1 John, and John wrote three epistles, actually, and we'll be looking at all of them, of course, in this Through the Bible program. But I have an introduction to put down for this first epistle that's very important for the understanding of it. This is a book that I have always used when I began my ministry in any new church. I didn't at the first church that I ever served because I was a seminary student and did not know enough then to begin in the right place. But in the four churches that I've served in my 40 years of ministry, I've always begun our midweek service by a study in 1 John. And I have used this book because I believe that it is actually more important for believers in the church to study than the church epistles. Now, Paul wrote church epistles, and the other epistles are church epistles. But this epistle actually is a family epistle and should be treated that way. And we'll call attention to that as we move into this very wonderful little book. And I have been able to see the midweek service in churches that I have begun my pastorate in. The attendance begin to crawl up. We've seen a phenomenal increase in the last two churches that I served. The attendance during the time we studied this little epistle, it doubled and then doubled again and then doubled another time so that we actually were having as many people in attendance as we were having in Sunday evening service. And there were times when the midweek service would surpass the Sunday night service. Now, as we come here to 1 John, and I tell you all of this for one purpose, and that is to try to call attention to the significance of it and the importance of it for believers. Now, this first epistle was apparently written somewhere between 90 and 100 A.D. It has been the belief of the church down through the years that John wrote his gospel first, and then he wrote his epistles second, and then finally wrote the book of Revelation before his death about 100 A.D. But in recent years... There have been those that have taken the position that probably John wrote his epistles last. Rather than Revelation, he wrote his epistles last. And I have come to that position in my own thinking. I don't think that it's too important, but I think it's important enough to call attention to, and we'll see why that is true. Now, John expressed the purpose for his writing in each of the three types of revelation God gave to him, gospel, epistles, and revelation, the prophetic book of the New Testament. Now, in his gospel, he stated the purpose like this in John 20, verses 30 and 31, and many other signs 
truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Now, that's the purpose that he expressed in writing his gospel. Now, in this first epistle, we have this stated here. He says, "...these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God." And that's 1 John five thirteen. But just in a moment, I want to call attention to the fact that in this epistle, John actually mentions five purposes, five reasons why he wrote this little epistle that is so important, therefore. Now, in the book of Revelation, Revelation 1.19, he stated his purpose in writing that book. He says, "...write the things which thou hast seen," that's the past, "...and the things which are," that is the present state of things, "...and the things which shall be hereafter." And that would be definitely prophetic. Now, there is a fivefold purpose, though, that John has expressed in writing this first epistle. And I think that makes it a very significant book. And I'll mention these now and come back to them later. In the first chapter, verse 3, he says, "...that ye may have fellowship with us." that is, other believers, and with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, the purpose of the epistle is that we all might have fellowship together. Now, the second purpose is in the fourth verse of the first chapter, that your joy may be full. And then the third purpose is in the second chapter, verse 1, that ye sin not. And then the fourth purpose is expressed over in the fifth chapter that we've already given, that you may know that you have eternal life. And the fifth reason is that you may believe on the name of the Son of God, so that it has a gospel message, and it has a gospel message that gives eternal life and an assurance to a believer. Then I would add an overall purpose is to present Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of this epistle. And I have written in my Bible over this epistle this scriptural statement, dwelling in the secret place of the Most High. And you will find that when we get into this epistle, that he's talking a great deal here about the family of God. And that is something that is quite wonderful and intimate. And this epistle has been called the Sanctum Sanctorum of the New Testament. It takes the child of God across the threshold into the fellowship of the Father's house. It is the family epistle. And John is writing here to the family of God. The word father, referring to God, is used 13 times, and little children, Jews 11 times. Now, Paul wrote to the church. John wrote to the family. 
the church as a body of believers in the position where we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavens. We're given that position when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that also brings us into the family of God. But in the family, we have a relationship which can be broken but is restored when we confess our sins. And we're told he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, he's talking there to his children. You see, sin in the first epistle of John is a family affair. It is something that has to do with a relationship with the Father. It is something that has offended someone that loves you. And it is to be treated like that. Now, I have in my notes, and I trust many of you have the notes, I have a little chart here. And I have an inner circle, and that circle is called the body, body of believers. Then a wider circle is called the family of God. And then a still wider circle that encompasses all of it, and that's the kingdom, kingdom of heaven are the kingdom of God. Now, the body of believers who constitute the church are in the family of God, though the family is larger than the church. The church and the family are both in the kingdom of God, but they're not synonymous terms. They could be under certain circumstances, as we shall see. Now, you have in this epistle three definitions given of God. And that's the way I've divided the epistle. God is light. And that is in chapter 1 down through chapter 2, verse 2. And light is used six times in this epistle. The second definition is God is love. And that begins in the second chapter, verse 3, goes through chapter 4, verse 21. And the word love is used... 33 times in this epistle. And then the third definition of God is God is life. And that's chapter 5. And that is used 15 times in this epistle. And fellowship is used four times. And the word know, and we saw how that was emphasized in Second Peter, it's used 38 times in this epistle. Now, John wrote to meet the first heresy which entered the church. It was Gnosticism, which boasted a super-knowledge. It accepted the deity of Jesus, but it denied his humanity. And John gives us the true Gnosticism, the true knowledge of God. And I want to say just a word about the Gnostics as we proceed in this epistle. Now, I want to take up the prologue. In the first three verses, we really have the prologue to the epistle. In fact, I would say the first four verses. But I have divided it. The first two verses, we have a prologue. And then we have how the little children may have fellowship with God. And that begins with verse 3 and goes down through chapter 2, verse 2. Now, we'll deal with it on that basis, on the outline 
that I've given. But I would consider the first four verses more or less of a prologue. Now, he tells us here in verse 1, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life." Now, John says here, "...that which was from the beginning." Now, what beginning is he talking about? Well, in the Scripture, we have three beginnings, and two of them that we are very familiar with. The one in Genesis 1.1, "...in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth." Now, that is an undated beginning. I do not know when that was. And I haven't the foggiest notion. And I have read books, and I mean books, volume after volume, on this question of Genesis 1-1, in fact, the first chapter of Genesis. And I think if I stacked all of those books up, they'd go to the ceiling here in my study, and I have a pretty high ceiling here. I actually believe that the stack of books would go that high And I'm convinced that of the books I've read, that no one, either scientist or theologian, has the foggiest notion when Genesis 1-1 really began. There are those now, some Christian scientists, I'm told, that are taking a view that they call the New Earth view. That is, that actually you and I are living on an earth that is not as old as they have claimed it's been. Of course, when I started in school, it was estimated that this earth was several hundred thousand years old. It would be something like 300,000 and 600,000 or 700,000 years old. And then they began to speak in terms of millions of years. And then I can recall that it was one million, and then it went to two million. And as I got older, why, the earth really got older. And I sure matured in a hurry. By the time I'd finished school, it was estimated that this earth was about two and a half million years old. Now I understand that they reached the billions. Now that's one direction. Others moving in the other direction Well, they won't make a new earth. Well, may I say to you that Genesis 1-1 will fit in to either scheme that you hold because it's not dated. All it does is just state the fact. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And until you are ready to take that verse and put it at the first of the Bible and accept it, my friend, you're not prepared to read very much farther in the Word of God. Because that's where it all rests. Did God create this universe? Or is it a happenstance? And it's almost ridiculous to think that it just happened, that this universe just came into existence. It is like Dr. Conklin said, to make a statement like that, that it just happened. It's just as ridiculous to say that as it is to say 
that the dictionary came into existence because they had an explosion in a print shop. Well, that's not the way it happened. There is intelligence back of this universe that you and I live in. As to the date, I don't know. Now, I do know this. We're dealing with a God of eternity. Now, if you need a few billion years to fit into your scheme of interpretation, then it's here because we're dealing with a God of eternity. And God has eternity back of him. And I don't know what he was doing before he created the heavens and the earth, but he was doing something. I'm confident of that. And then the earth and the universe comes into existence. And there dawns upon mankind through the Word of God that God has a purpose in this creation, that he not only created it, but he created it for a purpose, and he's working out a plan in his universe today. And it's bigger than any mind down here can comprehend. So if you want a few billion years for Genesis 1-1, take it. It's yours. It's there. And if you just need a few years, it's there. The thing of it is, God just wasn't interested in giving you a study in geology. He put a lot of rocks around for you to look at if you are interested in trying to figure out the date. Now, there's a second beginning that you have in the Word of God. That second beginning is in John 1.1. And John began his gospel, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God." Then you come down to creation. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. But you go way back of creation... And you want to put down your pegs again. Go back to creation. Say it was several billion years ago. Well, let's now get up in a trillion years ago. And you put down your peg way back yonder several trillion years ago. Well, why not just go the limit? Why not say several squillion years ago? Put down your peg way back there. And out of eternity comes the Lord Jesus Christ, and he already is past tense. He is then the ancient of days, because in the beginning, it's not in the beginning is the Word, but in the beginning was the Word. In other words, this is a beginning that doesn't even have a beginning, because he had no beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And that means you go back and put on your pegs anywhere you want to, he comes out of eternity to meet you. And that's big stuff. It's bigger than my little mind can comprehend. I don't even get into the picture of thinking about it until you come to the 14th verse of John, where it says, And the Word was born flesh. And then that takes me back to Bethlehem, where he was born, and I began to catch on at that time. But John 1.1 is too big for me. Now, 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning. Now, he's talking here about a beginning that began 1,900 years ago, plus how much I don't know. And at that time, it was Bethlehem. It was when he came into this world. It was when John got acquainted with him. John the apostle, John and James met him at Jerusalem. Then they were with their father 
mending nets. They evidently were well-to-do fishermen. And the Lord Jesus came by and called them. And then John says, I want to tell you that we heard him. In fact, he mentions four things here. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, the ear gate, that which we've seen with our eyes, that is a witness. You've seen something with your eyes. And most of what you and I know comes through our ear gate and our eye gate. And John says, we heard him, we saw him. And then he says, we've looked upon him. Now, this word look upon is theason, and we get our word theater from that. That means to gaze upon him. And that's what he meant when he says, we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father. Someone has said, the look saves, but the gaze sanctifies. John says, for three years, we gazed upon him. And it was John who wrote, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and people had to look to that serpent. Now John is, is saying here that the Lord Jesus said, I'll be lifted up, and if you look to me, the look of salvation, but if you're going to know him, you must gaze upon it. And that is that which sanctifies. Then he says, and our hands have handled. And that means that he'd handled him. And he says it was the word of life. Now, he's talking about the incarnation, when the word became flesh. Now, he's speaking of the Lord Jesus, of course, when he was in the earth. Now, he says, which we've heard. John here is not prattling about his opinions and his speculation. He is talking about the fact that he heard the Lord Jesus and when he listened to him, he listened to God. He's speaking to man. This is God speaking to man. Now, he says here that we not only heard him, but we've seen with our eyes. We cannot see him with our eyes as John did. That's true. But still, we can see him with the eye of faith. And Peter, you remember, told us, "...whom having not seen ye love." And the Lord Jesus himself, you remember speaking to Thomas after his resurrection, when Thomas would not believe until he could see and handle. And the Lord Jesus said to him in John 20, 29, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And we're walking today by faith. And we can have the Lord Jesus made as real to us as he was made to Thomas. Someone has expressed it like this, And warm, sweet, tender, even yet, a present help is he, and faith has still its Olivet, and love its Galilee. We've seen him by the eye of faith. Now he says, looked upon, and again, that word comes from theastai. We get our word theater from that. It's a place where you go in and sit down and look, you know. It's not just a passing glance, but a gaze. And that is what the word means here. And John, you remember, said, We beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten 
of the Father. And as we said, the look saves, but the gaze sanctifies. And many of us today need to do more than just look to him for salvation. After we've done that, we need to gaze upon him with the eye of faith. And you can do that in this epistle here as he makes it very clear. Now he says, we handled him. We handled him. And again, I want to turn back to Luke's gospel this time, to the 24th chapter, verse 39. And I read this here. He is speaking to his own in the upper room after his resurrection. He says, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. Now, there have been those, in fact, Dr. G. Calvin Morgan takes the position that when the Lord Jesus held out his hands to Thomas and to these others here, that they were so overwhelmed that they did not handle him. They just bowed down in reverence to him. And that would be the normal thing to do. But John, I think, makes it clear here, and this is the one place I disagree with Dr. Morgan. Well, I probably in other places too, but this is the one that I know of, and I dare not disagree with a man of his caliber unless there's a reason for it. But John says we handled him. And that means that John knew what it was to recline upon his bosom before his death and resurrection, and afterward he felt those hands, saw the nail prints, and that he was a man that he was the Word made flesh. God manifest in the flesh. Now, there arose at this time, after the death of Paul, which was about 67 A.D., there arose the heresy in the church. And it's called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, you know, is the opposite from agnosticism. We have a great many agnostics today. We have them in colleges and out of colleges. Men that say, well, I'm an agnostic. I do not know. Well, I always think of what Charles Spurgeon used to say about the agnostic. He says, well, the agnostic, that's a Greek word for the Latin word ignoramus. And when a man says, I don't believe the Bible because I'm an agnostic, He really means, I don't believe the Bible because I'm an ignoramus. That's what Charles Spurgeon said. Well, the agnostic says, I do not know. The Gnostic says, I do know. And Gnosticism was a group that arose, and they claimed to have a superior knowledge to any of the other Christians round about them, that the other Christians were... Very simple folk, but they were super-duper saints. And they knew a little bit more than anyone else knew. And among them was a man by the name of Serenthus. And the tradition says that in Ephesus, John went to the public bath to take a bath. And old Serenthus was down in the water. And John grabbed up his clothes and put them around him in a hurry And he ran out of the place because he wouldn't take a bath with that old heretic, that Gnostic. Well, Gnosticism came up with 
quite a few little novel ideas, which was literally heresy. And one of the things they came up with was that what really was true was that Jesus was just a man when he was born, just like any other man, no difference. But at his baptism, the Christ came upon him. And then at his death, that is, when he was put on the cross, the Christ left him. And that was their interpretation. Well, that's not the way John tells it to us, you see. The Word was born flesh. In other words, John makes it very clear in his gospel, and he makes it clear here that we have handled the Word of life, and that we handled him after he came back from the dead, and he was still a human being. He still had flesh and bone. And John says we handled him. So John says that we're not talking about a theory. We're not talking about something that we've heard. But he says this is something that we know, and we want to impart it to you. We want you to know what we know. And verse 2, he says, "...for the life was manifested." That is, the life was brought out in the open where men could see him. And we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. One of these men who was rather, we would call him a smarty, smart aleck is what we used to call him, he came up to me after a message and he said, you talked about eternal life. Now, he said to me, what is eternal life? He said, I'd like to know what eternal life is. Well, I said, and I gave him this verse. John says the life was manifested, we've seen it, and bear witness, and we show unto you eternal life, which was with the Father, and it was manifested unto us. Now, I said eternal life that John is talking about is the word of life, and it's none other than the Son, Jesus Christ, as we're told down now in the next verse. Now, I said If you want to know what eternal life is, you want a definition of it, eternal life is a person, and that person is Christ. Now, I said it's just as simple as this, brother, and even you can grasp it. You either have Christ or you don't have Christ. You either trust Christ or you don't trust Christ. And if you trust Christ, you have eternal life. If you don't trust Christ... You don't have eternal life. Now, I said to him, that's eternal life. Do you have eternal life? And he had to turn and walk away without answering. And his very fact he turned away was to me an evidence. He didn't have eternal life, and he didn't want to pursue that matter any further. He didn't want to be pushed regarding a decision for Christ. Now, what he's going to say here is something actually that is quite wonderful. That is that you and I can have fellowship with God. There is a possibility of a man having fellowship with God, and that's one of the most glorious prospects that's before us today, that you and I can have fellowship with God. Now, will you listen to him? Verse 3 now. 
that which we have seen and heard. That's the third time he's told us this, and I hope now it sort of percolated through to us that he had heard him and had seen him. We declare unto you. Now, why, John, are you telling us all about this? That ye also may have fellowship with us. Now, believers can have fellowship one with another. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. How are we going to have fellowship with God? Well, the only way we can have fellowship with God is for us to know Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we can. And it does present a dilemma. God is holy. Man is unholy. We are not holy people. But how can this gulf be bridged? How can you bring God and man together? Or, as we saw Amos put it, how can two walk together except they be agreed? How are we going to have fellowship? Well, to get over this impossible hurdle, John is going to present three methods. Two of them are man-made methods that won't work, and only one will work, and that will be God's method. And we're going to see that. Now, before we get to that, let me say just a word here about this word fellowship. Now, I've talked about this word before because it's such an important word. Fellowship. What is fellowship? Well, it's the Greek word koinonia, and that means what you have in common. That is what you can share together. It means for a believer that if we are to have fellowship with John and fellowship one with another, and you and I to have fellowship on this radio, it means we have to share the things of Christ. And that is the only way that you can have fellowship. Now, that means that you and I must know the Lord Jesus. And we must not just know about him, but we must know him as our personal Savior. What is this thing then called fellowship? Well, again, let me tell this story. We have dragged this word down in the mire today, and it means nothing in the world but going to a dinner and maybe a banquet in the church and patting somebody on their back and say, how you feel? That's fellowship. Well, that's not fellowship. And several years ago, I used to go down to Huntington Beach here in Southern California and speak at the Rotary Club. They had a very wonderful doctor who was the program chairman, and he told me that they could probably take me once a year. He'd either invite me at Christmas or at some other time, which would be Easter. And he said, give them both barrels, and I generally tried to give them both barrels. And since he's no longer program chairman, they don't have me back, I can tell you that. I'm not very popular on the banquet circuit, by the way, because they want to have a good time, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, at banquets. They don't want the Word of God just spread right out for them. And the thing I noticed at this place where they met, they had a big banner up over the speaker's table, and the speaker's table was elevated. And on this banner, the motto was, Food, Fun, Fellowship. Well, I want to tell you, the food wasn't anything to brag about. 
I shouldn't complain. Dinner didn't cost me anything. I don't think I'd wanted to pay anything for it. It was embalmed chicken with peas as big as bullets. And that was the lunch that we had. And then the fun, well, it was corny jokes like I tell. That's not too much fun, I guess. But then the fellowship, as best I could make out, was this man greeting another man, and he pats him on the back, and he says, Bill, how's business? And then Bill answers back, that business is good. And he says, how's your business? Fine. And somebody else says, well, how's the wife? You know, that's fellowship. And then they sing a little song together. And I'll be honest with you, I don't see the thrill in that type of a meeting, but I'm not criticizing because I don't belong to the knife and fork circuit at all. But that was the sum and substance of the meeting. Well, that's not fellowship, friends. And it's not fellowship when you hear an announcement made from the pulpit, come to our dinner, we're going to have good food and we're going to have a lot of fellowship. Well, what in the world do they have? Just meet around the table and talk to each other about everything under the sun, except the one thing that gives us fellowship. And that means to meet around the person of Christ. Now, let me give an illustration of the one place where they use it correctly. I had the privilege of being at Oxford University, just as a tourist going through, looking at everything. I saw the quad and all of that. I saw Wren's Tower there. And Oxford is made up of different schools. Now, you got one school there where you can study Shakespeare. Now, suppose that you wanted to know all about Shakespeare. You wanted to teach it, probably. You'd go to Oxford, and you'd go to that particular college where they specialize in that. Well, when you got there, you went and sat down at the board, and we saw where they eat in each one of these colleges. And you meet the man, the professors eat there, and you talk with each other. And you hear them talking about Shakespeare in a way that you never knew before. For instance, you and I thought that Romeo and Juliet, that she was just the only girl that he ever went with. And when Romeo made the statement, the all-seeing sun has never seen her like since first the world begun, that he was really talking about Juliet. And did you know that that fickle fellow Romeo was talking about another girl when he said that? And you thought, my, there's a lot about Shakespeare that I don't know. So you begin to study. You pull books down off the shelf in the library. You go to the lectures. And after you've been there a while, that is a couple of years, maybe three years, they make you a fellow. And now you go in and sit down at the board, and they talk about the sonnets of Shakespeare, and you are right in there with them because you've read them now, and you know Shakespeare, and you can have fellowship with them. Now, fellowship for a believer means that we meet and share the things of Christ. In fact, this Bible study we have together here each day, I trust is a fellowship with many of you. As we talk about the Lord Jesus and about his word, we trust that you enter into it and that it becomes meaningful to you and that you and I share the things of Christ. We can have fellowship one with another when we share the things of Christ, and we can have fellowship with him. And I think right now, and I mean this, right now, 
I think that he's listening in to us and that he's watching you and me both. And he's saying, McGee, why don't you do a better job than you're doing? You're not presenting it maybe as wonderful as it should be. And I do say, I wish I could present him in a more wonderful way because, friends, that's one of his names. He's wonderful. And he's the only one we ought to use the word wonderful with. All right? Now, that's what we have, that we might have fellowship. Verse 4, And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Now, this is the second reason that he mentions here, is that we might have joy. How wonderful this is, that we might have joy. Now, not just a little joy, but a whole lot of joy. Now, if you and I are having fellowship with him, then may I say to you that we're not only having fellowship, and by the way, that means the experience of fellowship. The word sometimes can refer to an act of fellowship. The communion service in the church is an act of fellowship. Giving is an act of fellowship, and praying is an act. But he's talking about the experience of fellowship. The thing that Paul said, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Now, in this chapter, we're talking about the fellowship, the experience of fellowship. And we mean by that, that which will bring joy to the heart. And that's the high note. That's the ultimate aim of preaching is through conviction and repentance. Salvation might come to men and women, and it might bring great joy to their hearts, like that Ethiopian eunuch. Why, Philip wasn't necessary. He didn't go around bragging what a great preacher Philip was. The thing that he did was he went on his way rejoicing. Why? He'd come to know Christ. And friends, he wants us to have a lot of fun today. Now, we are presented, though, with a real problem here. He has already said that he's done this, that we can have fellowship and that our joy might be full. And our joy would naturally be full if we could have fellowship with him, sharing the things of Christ. But here's a hurdle to get over. Actually, John faces up to a real dilemma that every child of God recognizes. And that is this, that God is holy. The very possibility of man having fellowship with God is one of the most glorious prospects that come to us. But immediately our hopes are dashed to the rocks when we will face up to this dilemma. This dilemma is this, verse 5, I'm reading. This then is the message which we've heard of him and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And that means God is holy, and we know man is unholy. Now, how can this gulf be bridged between a holy God and between a wonderful Savior and Vernon McGee? Because the bridge would have to be a long one. It's over a very steep and deep canyon. 
what a difference is here. And how can we bring God and man together? That was the cry of Job. Oh, that there were a daysman that just could put his hand in the hand of God and put his hand in my hand and bring us together. And Amos said, how can two walk together except they be agreed? God has said, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As the heaven is as high above the earth, so are my thoughts and my ways above yours. So how is a sinful man to walk with God? God is light, and he wants to put that down here at the very first. He puts down this great axiom. In fact, it's a definition of God. And we have divided this epistle according to the three definitions that are given in it. God is light. This is first. God is love. That is second. And God is life. That is third. We'll see all three in this epistle. Now, how in the world are we going to have fellowship with God? It looks as if that we are going to have to do one or two things. We've either got to bring God down to our level, or we'll have to bring man up to God's level. And you can't do either one, yet men have tried it, and John shows the impossibility of the first one. And so he puts down this great axiom or definition of God. God is light. He's pure light. Now, science today, so I'm told, is not quite sure what light is. Is it just an energy, or is it really something? Is it matter? What is light? Oh, the source of light's one thing, but when you turn the light on in your room, and it was dark over in the corner, now it's light, what do you mean? What's happened? What is it that went over in the corner and drove out the darkness? Or did it drive out the darkness? Because when that source of light goes off up in the ceiling, why, it's dark back in the corner again. So what is light? Well, when you say that God is light, it reveals many facets about the person of God. You don't cover the total spectrum of the attributes of God but I want to say this, when you say God is light, you're saying a great deal. First of all, light speaks of the glory, the radiance, the beauty, and the wonders of God. Have you ever been up of a morning to see the sun come up like a blaze of glory? I was with a friend. We camped on the edge of Monument Valley up in Arizona beautiful spot. We slept there that night in sleeping bags, and when I waked up the next morning, he was standing there, and the dawn was just breaking. You could see those two mittens there that stand up as so many other monuments in that valley. And I said to him, what are you doing so early? And he made this statement. He says, I am watching God create a new day. What a thrill it was to be there and watch God create a new day. The glory, the radiance, God is light. All of a sudden, the sun peeped over the horizon, and then it came marching over in a blaze of glory. And I must confess, it got pretty hot that day. But what a sunrise that was. And I have several pictures of that 
slides that I made at that time of that glorious sunrise. Now, there's another thing about light. Light is self-revealing. Light can be seen, that is, the light here in my studio where I broadcast. I see the light up above, but I notice it diffuses itself. It illuminates the darkness. It's self-revealing. It lets me see my hands here. And I notice one of them, I've been handling books this morning. I'm going to have to take it out and wash it. And if it hadn't been for the light, I wouldn't be able to see that. Light is self-revealing. And then light reveals flaws and impurities. Whittier put it like this, Our thoughts lie open to thy sight and naked to thy glance. Our secret sins are in thy light of thy pure countenance. And as Dr. Schaefer used to put it, that secret sin down here is open scandal in heaven because our sins are right there before him because God is light. And then it speaks again of the purity of God, the white purity and the stainless holiness of God. God moves without making a shadow because he's light, he's pure. The light of the sun is actually a catharsis to this earth. It not only gives light, it cleanses. It's a great cleanser. Many of you ladies put a garment out in the sun actually to clean it, to maybe get an odor out. The sun is a great cleansing agency. This speaks of the purity of God. God does not make a shadow. We saw that back in Hebrews. And he doesn't make a shadow at all. Now, we have here another thing, a fifth thing. Light guides man. It points out the path. Light on the horizon lead man on to take courage and to keep moving on. God is light. Now, let me go to the other extreme. Darkness is actually more than negation of light. It's not just the opposite of light. It actually is hostile to light. It is the light, the holiness of God in opposition are actually in direct conflict with evil and with chaos in the world. Now, we're presented with the dilemma. I'm a little creature down here filled with sin. You want to know the truth? Totally depraved. Without the grace of God for salvation, why, I would be nothing in the world but a creature that's in rebellion against God and with no good within me at all. God has made it very clear to man that he finds no good within Paul says, There dwelleth within me, that is my flesh, there dwelleth no good thing. And he says again, There is none righteous. No, not one. None that not only have any innate goodness, but they're in rebellion against God. And he goes on to tell us that also, about that rebellion that is in the human heart today. Because he says the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So we are living in a world today that is in rebellion to Almighty God. God is holy. I'm a sinner. 
saved by grace, yes. But how am I going to have fellowship with him? How am I going to walk with him? Well, men have attempted to do this in three different ways that are presented here. Two of them are wrong. Now, the first method is to bring God down to the level of man. Now, will you listen to him in verse 6 here? If we say that we have fellowship with him... Now, this is something we say. This is not true, but we say it just the same. And there are a lot of people saying it. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Did you get the thing that John said there? Rather blunt, don't you think? He said, we lie. It's not a nice thing to call another man a liar. But John says that if you say that you have fellowship with him and you're walking in darkness, that is, in sin, you are lying. Now, I didn't say that. I'm too polite to say that to you. John said it. You know, and we always think of John being that little ladylike apostle, carried his handkerchief in his sleeve. And I don't know how that rumor got around that he is that type of a man except during the Middle Ages, there was an artist that painted him with curls. And I wouldn't be that artist for anything in the world. He looked like some sort of a hippie. Curls. And the idea got around because they call him the Apostle of Love. Our Lord never called him that. He called him a son of thunder. And that's just the opposite of love, by the way. And so he says here that we lie. And I wouldn't want to be that artist to come into the presence of John someday. If John and that artist meet at the corner of Glory Avenue and Hallelujah Boulevard in heaven, I tell you, that artist is going to know what thunder and lightning both are, because I think John's going to level with him. What is the big idea, given the worldly impression that I was somehow or another a sissy-type individual? He's a great big two-fisted, rugged fisherman, And he says that if you say that you are having fellowship with God and you're walking in darkness, you lie because God's light, God's holy. And today we hear so much of sin among Christians. Somebody said to me the other day, it was headline material here in Southern California, that one of the cults has some members actually committing adultery. I don't know whether it was a rumor. I don't know whether it's accurate or not. But I don't know that the paper would have risked a lawsuit unless they had some basis for saying it. And they said it. And it was a cult. And they talk about what a wonderful level of life they've arrived at. They keep the law and all that sort of thing. But one of the Ten Commandments is, "...thou shalt not commit adultery." Now, they would try, of course, to explain that away in some fashion. May I say to you, friends, if you are going to walk with God, you're going to walk in light. And if there's sin in your life, you're not walking with Him. Somebody says, well, there's sin in my life. I know there is. All of us have that in our lives. And how are we going to walk with God? Well, we're going to find out today but you can't find out by bringing him down to your level. If we walk in the light as he's in the light, and that means the light now, the Word of God, because that's where we get the light of God, is in his Word. We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, 
cleanseth us from all sin. Now, here is something that's important to see. It is not primarily how you walk. It's where you walk. Because you can actually walk in darkness and think that you're all right. I went squirrel hunting several years ago, and I was holding meetings in my first pastorate up in Middle Tennessee, a place called Woodbury. A doctor after the morning service came to me and asked me, would I like to go squirrel hunting? I said, there's nothing I'd rather do. So he brought by a shotgun after lunch, picked me up. We went out to his farm, parked in the barnyard there, and we went down the branch there. And there are two hills, one on one side, one on the other, and we had good hunting. We came to where there was a fork in the creek. And he said to me, I'm going to take the right fork, you take the left one, come around the hill and come back to the barnyard. We'll meet there. In the meantime, it looked like it was going to rain. And it had drizzled once or twice and stopped. And when I started out by myself, it started drizzling again. And I kept going. And I made the turn around the hill. I noticed quite a few caves there. And it just kept drizzling. In fact, the matter is, it was sprinkling. And I saw I was going to get wet, so I crawled up in one of those caves, the largest one that I could find. And I was sitting up in the dark, up in the cave. I sat there for, I'm sure, 30 minutes, and I got cold. And decided I better have a fire. So I pulled together a bunch of leaves, and I put a match to them. And then I looked around in the cave, and I found out I wasn't alone. I'd never been in a place where there were as many spiders and lizards as there were in that cave. And over in the corner, there was a little snake all coiled up, and he was just looking at me. Now, friends, I'll tell you, I got out of there. I worked on the assumption that possession is nine-tenths of the law, and since they had it ahead of me, it belonged to them. So I got out of there, and I proceeded down and really got good and soaking wet. But I wasn't going to step in that cave. Now, the fact of the matter is, I was sitting up there in comfort for 30 minutes, but I was sitting in darkness. When the light came on, I saw the surroundings. Now, actually, today, there are multiplied numbers of Christians that are sitting in churches across this land. They're sitting in a pew on Sunday morning. And they're not hearing the Word of God. And as a result, they're sitting there in darkness. They're hearing some dissertation on economics or on politics or on the good life or doing good and do the best that we can. Believe me, I tell you, liberalism had pretty well sown down America, making us think we're the greatest people in the world because we were so sweet and nice and good. May I say to you, multiplied numbers have been sitting in darkness. And they've been comfortable. Of course they're comfortable. But if they would get in the light of the Word of God, they would see that they were sinners and that you can't bring God down to man's level. You can't do that. That's not the way you're going to be able to walk with God. And I think that there are today in our churches many folk, and this comes out, it has to me over the years as a pastor. You find out that here is maybe some man that has been making quite a profession as a Christian. He goes around and makes talks on it. He's a good speaker, and he's a layman, 
and you find out that he's been living actually in adultery, keeping a woman on the side for several years. He's finally caught up with, but my, the damage that that sort of thing does. Now, that man will even still insist that he's having fellowship with God. Now, friends, I don't care what you say today, and I recognize we're living in a day of what's called a new morality, and men today attempt to rationalize their sinning, and they try to explain it away. As one woman tried to say to me, you can't commit adultery unless you're married. She wasn't married at the time, and then got married and continued to commit adultery, and then she didn't have any more arguments, and she would no longer counsel with me at all on this matter of the thing that she was doing because her husband was insisting that she counsel with me because he actually loved her and he didn't want to lose her. If he had followed my advice, he'd got rid of her. But I know I'm hard-boiled. Some of you are going to say that. But nevertheless, I think that's what he should have done. But he didn't. And this is the attitude that they have. But my friend, I don't care what you say, you can't bring God down to your level and think that he'll have fellowship with you. And if you say you're having fellowship with him, I didn't say it. John said you're lying about it. You're rationalizing. You're kidding yourself. You're fooling yourself, using some psychological ploy to try to put up a good front in this type of thing. And there's so much of our psychological hang-ups today that are around this very point. Or, as someone said to me when I was speaking on this, and I was speaking very much like I have right now, they said, well, actually, what you mean, Dr. McGee, are the hypocrites in the church. And when it comes down to that, and you want to get right down to the nitty-gritty, that's what we're talking about, hypocrites of professing one thing, I'm having fellowship with God, and then walking in darkness. And it's not the one answer that the Bible has, and I think the Holy Spirit would back John up here and say, you're lying. And I'd rather go along with that myself. Now he says here, though, now if you do that, and you are a child of God, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship one with another. But wait a minute. When I walk in the light, I see things wrong. I saw the spot on my hand the other day. Then I went and washed it off. Now, does it mean you've lost your salvation? Will you listen? And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us. Present tense. Just keeps on cleansing us from all sin. You won't lose your salvation but you lose your fellowship. You see, we're talking about family truth here in First John. This is the family of God. Now, we've heard so much today. I think a great overemphasis of what is known as body truth. I don't know why some people seem to have just stumbled on it for the first time. And when people get a new truth, they go over the deep end and overemphasize it. Now, that's fine. Body truth is great. But family truth, you're in the family of God now. And sin now that's in your life, he's not going to treat you like the sinner outside, but he's going to treat you like a disobedient child, not having fellowship with the father. He'll take you to the woodshed. He took David to the woodshed. 
and Ananias and Sapphira didn't get off so very easy, I would say. And we find many of God's children that feel that way about it. That's been one method that's been used. Now, another method that is used is to attempt to bring man up to God's level. That means that we try to say man has reached a sinless plateau and that he's living on this very high plateau. Well, John deals with that. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And that's even worse than being a liar. When you get to the place where you say you don't have any sin in your life, there's no truth in you at all. It doesn't mean now you've just lied. It means that you don't even have the truth, my friend. And you're doing what? You deceive yourself. Now, you don't deceive your wife. You don't deceive your husband. You don't deceive the preacher. You don't deceive your friends. It's something that you just can't do. Now, I ran into this very early in my training as a minister. In fact, when I went to college as a freshman, my first roommate was a young man also studying for the ministry. And he was a sweet boy in many ways. The only trouble with him was he was perfect. And he shocked me. In fact, when I entered the room, he was not in at the time. And so when he came in, why, he introduced himself, and I thought I was going to meet a buddy, but I found out I didn't meet a buddy. He informed me that he had not committed a sin in so many years. I don't know whether it was a year, two, or three years. It just shocked me to meet a fellow that hadn't committed a sin. Now, any room that I live in, things go wrong. It's always been that way. And things went wrong in that room. Now, I'm in a very unusual position. I'm living in a room. Two of us are in there. And one of us can't commit a sin or do anything wrong, really. And something goes wrong in the room. <laughs> Guess who's to blame? You're right. I got the blame for it. Because he couldn't do it. Well, I want to be very frank with you. He was a good fella. A very nice fellow, but he wasn't perfect. He hadn't reached the plane he thought he'd reach. So after the first semester, a freshman was permitted then to move where he wanted to. I told him, I said, I'm moving out. He said, oh, no. He says, where are you going? Well, I said, I'm going to move down the hallway here. The fellow, he and I have been out. We wrestled together, worked out on the football team, although both of us worked and we couldn't go with the team, but we could work out with him. And I'd got acquainted with him. And I said to this roommate of mine, I said, I've met a fella down the hallway. He's just as mean as I am. And I'm going to room with him. So this fellow was greatly distressed that I'd move out. Well, I did. And he didn't get a roommate after that, I understand. And so what happened was, this fellow I roomed with, he was as mean as I am, and he and I got along wonderfully well, so much so that I still see him down in the state of Florida. When I go down there, he's an old man now, but I go down, and he and I always have a wonderful time together. We generally have two or three days together, because he's still mean, although he has sweetened up a little, 
but he's not perfect by any means. And may I say to you, when you feel like that you've reached that state of perfection, I sure feel sorry for your husband or for your wife, whichever you are, because you're really going to have a hard time living with a perfect individual. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, we can't bring ourselves up to God's level. That's impossible. You just can't bring yourself up and say that you ever reach perfection at all. Now, a great many people and a lot of good people like to feel that they do reach that plane. I had another instance, if I may illustrate this, because I think this is important, right here in Pasadena. When I first came here, there was a very lovely man. He acted for a while as chaplain in a jail, and he was just a wonderful, enthusiastic Christian. I had no criticism of it, but he met me on the street one day, and he said, Brother Vernon, I got sanctified last night. I said, you did? What, what really happened to you? He says, well, I've now reached the plane where I don't sin. Well, I said, believe me, you sure needed to reach that plane, and I'm glad to hear you reached it. So I didn't see him for a while after that. But one of my officers of the church I served at the time lived next door to him. And his son had come to visit this man that had reached perfection. And he came in a trailer. And he took the trailer and backed it up in the backyard. And he put part of it over on the property of the man that was an officer in my church. Well, he didn't say anything for a while. And it looked like the boy's going to move in and stay there. And he didn't say anything, but the time came when he wanted to build a shed on that particular spot. And his neighbor knew it, and he kept waiting, and finally couldn't wait any longer. And so he said to his neighbor one day, ask him if he wouldn't move the trailer, have his son move the trailer. And this fellow lost his temper and really told him off what kind of a neighbor he thought he was. The trailer was just hanging over a few feet, but it was preventing this man from building there, something he wanted to build on his own property. Oh, but he really lost his temper. And he just casually told me about it. So I just couldn't wait to meet that fellow after that. In fact, I looked him up. And when I met him finally, I said to him, didn't you tell me that you got sanctified? He said, yes. Well, I said, when you get sanctified, that means you reach the plane of sinless perfection? He said, yes, as I think I've reached it. Well, I said, look, your neighbor, he's a member of my church, and he tells me that you really lost your temper the other day and told him off in a very unkind, unchristian manner. And he said, well, huh. began to hum and haw, he says, that I guess I did, and he says, I guess maybe I did lose my temper, but he says, that's not sin. Oh, I said, it's not sin? Well, what is it then? Well, he says, I just made a mistake, and I shouldn't have done it. I recognize that. I shouldn't have done it, and so that's not a sin. Well, I said, I want you to shake hands with me now, because I've reached that plane, too, that you've reached. I don't sin. I just make mistakes. And I make a lot of them, brother. 
But I said, I think the Word of God would make it very clear to you to lose your temper. Ball your neighbor out is a sin. And you're certainly not to be angry in a case like that. Now, may I say to you, who do you deceive when you say you have no sin? You deceive yourself, and you're the only person that you do deceive. You don't deceive God. You don't deceive your neighbors. You don't deceive your friends. But you sure do deceive yourselves. And that's the reason the truth's not in a man like that, because he can't see that he is a sinner and that he's not reached the place of sinless perfection. That's the second way. Now, you can't bring God down to your level. You can't bring yourself up to God's level. So what are you going to do? What is the alternative? Well, it's made very clear to us here. I turn now and read verse 9. And here's another one of our ifs. We've had several of them. If we say that we have fellowship, if we walk in the light, if we say that we have no sin. Now, here is the one that will work. Here's God's method for Christians dealing with sin in their own lives. He says here, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we're to confess our sins. Now, what does it mean to confess our sins? Well, the word that's used here is homo legeo. That is a verb that means to say the same thing. Legeo means to say. Mo means the same. You're to say the same thing. To say the same thing means what? Well, you say the same thing God says. God says that that thing that you did is sin. That is sin, and what you're to do, you're to get over on God's side now, and you're to look at the thing that you've done. And you're to get over there, and God points at you and says, you have sinned. Now, you're to say, as you look at yourself, you're right, Lord. I've sinned. I say the same thing you've said. I confess my sin. That's what it means to confess your sin. And that, my friend, is, I think today, one of the greatest needs in the church. When's the last time that you really heard a child of God say, I've sinned, I've been wrong, I've done wrong, I'm wrong. And every now and then you hear somebody, I wasn't going to tell this, but I think I should. I just talked the other day with a man that, I tell you, he got into deep trouble. He has divorced his wife. He found out she was unfaithful. He's lost his home. He lost his job. Very discouraged man. And he said to me, he says, Oh, I want to serve God. And I have failed. I'm a total failure. And I very frankly said to him, I said, Don't crown my shoulder. Go and tell God that. He wants you to. Tell him that you failed. Tell him that you're wrong. Tell him that you want to say the same thing he said about it. And you want his help. He's your father. 
You're in the family. You've lost fellowship with him, but you can have fellowship restored if we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And then what does he do? He cleanses us. That means that the prodigal son, when he got home, before he got that robe, friends, he had a bath. You don't think the father would have put a new robe on that ragged, dirty boy smelling like a pig pen, do you? No, he gave him a good bath. In the Roman world, they majored in cleanliness. And he got a good bath. He was cleansed. And a new robe was put on him. And the next week, he didn't say, Dad, I think I'm going to go to the far country and end up in the pig pen again. Not that boy. (laughs) May I say to you, when you have confessed your sin to God, it means, my friend, that you've turned from that sin. It means you have said the same thing God has said. It's a terrible thing. God hates it. You hate it now. But you've now been restored to your Father. And he concludes this by saying, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And the word is not in us. Now, don't make God a liar. Why don't you go to the Lord, friends, and just open your heart and talk to him as you can talk to no one else. Tell him your problem. Tell him your sin. Tell him your weakness. Confess it all to him and tell your father that you want to have fellowship and you want to serve him. My, he's made a marvelous, wonderful way back to himself.